And I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26. Our keynote verse for the morning, Proverbs 12, 26. It's on page 636. So when I was in college, I had my ear pierced for one week. It was freshman year, and I was like, you know, getting to know guys in the dorm, and we were hanging out and, get, you know, trying to build friendships. And a couple of guys walk in the dorm, they're like, hey, we're going to the mall to get our ear pierced. Like, who's in? Who's in? And one of the guys in the room's like, yeah. Another guy, yeah. And the next thing you know, you just kind of get swept up in it. So seven of us or so trundle off to the mall and, you know, sit down in a little seat and, chink, you know, you get the, the earring. And, so a couple of days later, I'm walking around campus, and this, um, this girl I kind of knew walks up to me, and she looks at me, and she's like, oh, no, 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 this is not working for you, Jeremy. So uh, and she told me this. Is, I'm like, what? It's cool. Come on, you know. And, well, a, about a week after all this kind of uh, passed by, uh, finally the friends weren't there, and the hype wasn't there, and I wasn't caught up in sort of the foam of the, the social moment. And I'm just staring myself in the mirror. I'm like, what, what am I thinking, you know? Uh, now, listen, I have no problem with guys having earrings. And maybe some of you do. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with tattoos or body piercings. I mean, none of that bothers me. In fact, I think there's some guys who can make an earring look really good. I, I'm just saying I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So I, I took it out. And that was uh, my one uh, experiment with body piercing. Isn't it amazing how profoundly our friends affect us. How much the people we associate with really do shape the way we dress, the, what, the food we eat, the things we do. We're really affected by friends. It's really amazing. You know, we like to think we're uh, independent, that we have our own mind, that we're not lemmings following the other lemmings off the cliff. We like to think we're not sheep. We're not affected by the mass culture. But the reality is that we really are social beings and that we're profoundly shaped by the people in our lives, even though we don't want to admit it and we don't like to think that that's true. You know, every other people are, but not me. Yeah, right. But you know, that's the way God made us. God created us to be social beings. It says that uh, God created us in his image. He created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. In other words, God created us as social uh, counterparts to one another, not just in gender, but just as human beings. Uh, you know, God is a social community. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, which is a great mystery. But there at the center of God is fellowship and relationship. And so we've been made as relational beings in God's image. So wouldn't it make sense then? that we too are affected by the friends we have in a really profound kind of way. And I think, you know, think about the church. You know, that's part of God's plan for our growth in the church, that we become Christians, followers of Christ, and then we become part of local fellowships that then shape and affect us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. You know, one of the um, kind of jargony phrases that evangelicals use, if you've been around evangelicals at all, they use this phrase. They say, you know, it's not enough just to go to church. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You got, you know, you've heard that phrase. And, which is, you know, it's true. I mean, it's a summary of a lot of biblical teaching that, that our salvation needs to be personal. It's a direct relationship through faith in Christ. It's not just going to church. But, you know, here's the thing, people. We may have a personal relationship with Christ, but it's not and was never intended to be a private 
relationship with Christ. That is unbiblical. This personal relationship with Christ brings us into community with other people where we're to share this personal relationship with Christ together. It's not a private relationship with Christ, although it is personal. And so God's plan is that we have relationships and friends who affect us in the right direction, and yet we recognize that in a sinful and broken world, friends and relationships can take us in a different direction. So I'm going to preach a sermon today that I don't think I've ever directly preached on this topic. And maybe you've never heard a sermon directly on this topic, but it's here in Proverbs, as we've been looking through Proverbs, and it seems to just kind of uh, jump out of the text in a number of places. I want to preach about friendship today, which is a little bit different, but it's really interesting to see what Proverbs has to say. And Proverbs is very uh, direct in teaching us that we have to watch our friendships carefully because they do affect us so profoundly. Look at chapter 12, verse 26. It says, A righteous man is cautious in friendship, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. It's interesting. A righteous man is cautious in friendship. If we're going to follow Christ and walk in his ways, we have to scrutinize carefully who uh, we're going to let into the sacred precincts of our friendship and of our lives. In fact, uh, the Hebrew word is even a little more interesting. To hear it says, the tr- English translation is, is cautious. The Hebrew is more like, a righteous man spies out his friends. It's actually the word that's used, you know, in the book of Numbers, when Moses comes to the edge of the promised land, but before he goes into the promised land, he gets 12 spies. He's like, you guys are going in and you're going to spy it out. And so they're, they're kind of sneaking around the promised land. What are you doing here? Nothing, nothing. You know, but they're spying it out, gathering intelligence, figuring out the lay of the land, what kind of enemies they're going to be facing. That's the same word. It's this idea that we're spying out friends. Not that we're spying on our friends, but we're spying them out. We're trying to figure out who it is that we are going to allow, as I said, into the sacred precincts of friendship in our lives, into those positions that will influence us profoundly. And Proverbs says you've got to be careful with that. You know, some of you are going back to school this fall, and a month from now you're going to be in classes, and you're going to be with people, and, you know, who's going to be your friends? Who are you going to allow into friendship in your lives? Are you thinking that through? Or do you just kind of hang out with whoever wants to hang out with you? Who are your friends? What effect do they have on you? And so what I want to do now in Proverbs is look at two characteristics that it seems to me sort of arise out of Proverbs. Two characteristics of the ideal kinds of friends we should be looking for. Two things that make a a biblically sound friend, if you want to put it that way. That that as you kind of, uh, I don't know, gather and collect all the different Proverbs here and there on friendship, these two themes appear to emerge out of the text. And the first one is this. I just have two points. The first one is this that the kinds of friends we should be looking for, according to Proverbs, are loyal friends. That loyalty, faithfulness, and commitment are extremely high on the priority list, according to God's uh, teaching here in Proverbs. Look with me at chapter 17, verse 17. It says, Proverbs 17, 17, A friend loves... At all times, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I love that. A friend loves at all times. So a friend loves you when you got money and can do things, and a friend loves you when you're broke and out of work and you're mooching off them. A friend loves you when you're healthy and you can go kayaking and you can bike and walk around the mall, and a friend loves you 
when you're sick and you're on chemo and you can't do those things you used to do. A friend loves you when you're fun and energizing and good to be with, but a friend is also going to be with you when you're struggling with depression and you're on medication. That's a real friend. They're going to love you at all times, not just when things are going well. It says a brother is born for adversity. You know, we've all heard of fair weather friends. Uh, Scripture is calling us to look for and to be foul weather friends. The friends who will stand with you on the boat when the tempest is breaking over the bow of your life and they're going to stand with you and help you hold on to the wheel and not get washed overboard. That's a real friend. Uh, Some of you have been through difficult times in your lives where you've been tested. And isn't it interesting to find out who your real friends are? The people who you thought were going to be there evaporated. And people that you really didn't notice before were standing beside you. And so adversity and difficult times in our lives really do test who our friends are uh, and, and who stands by us. So uh, that's what it says here in 1717. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. The opposite of that, if you want to see kind of a negative proverb on the same theme, look at chapter 25, verse 19. This is the same idea, just kind of flip-flop from the other perspective. Proverbs 25:19 says, Like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. When difficulties come and you have people bail on you, it's like biting down on something and suddenly your tooth just ooh, sears with pain. It's a bad tooth. Or a lame foot, you know, a sprained ankle. You can't use it. What are the, uh, just kind of vivid, painful pictures of the pain we have when people disappoint us that we thought were our loyal friends, uh, but they really aren't. It seems to me that underlying, sort of lurking somewhere in the theological kind of substructure of this idea of loyalty is the biblical idea of a covenant. It seems like that's kind of somewhere in the background here. As you know, in the ancient times, people would make covenants with each other where two people who weren't related, that's what a covenant was, would commit and pledge loyalty to each other. And we still have covenants today. We have a marriage. Marriage is a covenant. I did a wedding here yesterday. The pulpit wasn't here. I had the couple standing right here just yesterday and, and I was, had them join hands and face each other and they had to say their vows for better or for worse for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And so they're staring into each other's eyes, promising loyalty. That's the essence of a covenant. And so that kind of covenant is, I think, the idea of the kind of relationships God ideally intended for people to have with each other in a perfect world. That we would be loyal to each other and would stand by each other no matter what the test or no matter what the trial was. Uh, When I look at the Old Testament, I was trying to think of some friendship stories from the Old Testament to illustrate all this. I think one of the great loyalty stories is the relationship between David and Jonathan, you know, in the Old Testament. You know King David, who uh, slew Goliath? He was the second king of Israel. The first king of Israel, if you remember, was King Saul. And King Saul had a son named Jonathan. And so there was King Saul and Prince Jonathan. And then when David slew Goliath, he obviously came to prominence and everyone said, look, who's this kid? And David became one of the commanders in the army. And the thing is that uh, from that point, Saul took David into his service, but Jonathan just loved David and they became friends and they made a covenant of friendship together. And let me just read to you from 1 Samuel 18. You don't have to turn there. But let me just read the first, 14 verses, uh, first four verses. This is right after David slays Goliath. Okay? It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. 
From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. They became best friends. They covenanted loyalty together. And now if you know the story, if you track that story out, that friendship was tested down the road, right? You know the story? Because as David grew in prominence, King Saul became paranoid. He began worried that David was going to usurp his throne. And so he became hostile. He even wanted to kill David. And so here's Jonathan between his dad, who wants to kill David, and David, who's his best covenant friend. And so finally he turns around and he confronts his dad at, at a dinner party they're having. And he's like, what are you doing? You know, what's wrong with you? And his dad becomes so enraged that he would defend David that his dad hurls a spear at Jonathan. And apparently Jonathan, you know, dodges it or does the Matrix or something and escapes that. And he's like, what are you doing, Dad? You're trying to kill me. And so uh, he goes out and he tells David. He says, David, my dad is trying to kill you. You need to flee for your life. And I'm going to stand here with my father, but you need to go. And, you know, I was like, that's real loyalty. What kind of, do you have a friend who would be willing to stand against their own parents in order to support you if you were in the right? I mean, that's loyalty. Where do you find friends like that today? Huh? How do you find that kind of loyalty? I just think it's hard to find someone with that kind of commitment. You know, I think in high school or junior high, some of you who are in that age of your life or even college, you know, friends are just so fluid. I was talking to a high school student this week and he was complaining that he had no friends. I said, what happened to your friends? He said, well, I had a girlfriend and my friend stole her from me. And then all my other friends sided with my friend who stole the girlfriend. And I'm like, oh, dude. And I, I didn't know what to say, so this was my pastoral wisdom. I just said, man, I'm glad I'm not in high school anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, pastor. <laughs> like, don't worry, man. You'll be out of it in a few years. It's going to get better. <laughs> but even as adults, how do you find loyal friends as adults? So much of the modern world, I think, militates against the concept of loyalty. Uh, even unintentionally, just sort of how it is. You know, we live these fragmented lives. We work over here, and that's miles away from where we live, but we also have this hobby with a group of people from over here. So we live and associate in lots of different pods or compartments that don't connect. How do you have develop loyal friendships if your life is all segmented and fragmented? Uh, we're so busy. That's, I think that's a great killer of friendship. How do you d- take the time to develop deep, loyal friendships when we're so busy doing things? How do we develop uh, deep, loyal friendships when people are so transient? When people move into an area and two years later they move out of an area? And I think New England's kind of got a leg up on that. So I think New England, people do tend to stay around longer, which is a good thing. But still, transience makes friendships difficult. Uh, and what about, what about the impact of the Internet on loyalty and relationships? I was thinking about this. I don't think we have yet to realize how... Uh, massively the internet and social networking through the internet is impacting the way relationships work in our culture. I don't think we've even begun to realize the way it is, you know, no pun intended, reformatting the way we do relationships. Uh, My wife just got on Facebook about a month ago. She finally broke down and did it. And, you know, it's been good. She's been able to keep in touch with some of her friends who are a little further away. But something weird happens when you get on Facebook. You start getting emails. And these emails are from other people on Facebook who want to become your friend. What it means is that then you give them permission to be your friend and then they can comment on your Facebook page and you can comment on theirs. You sort of open up this kind of friendship channel. But my wife showed me these. She goes, do you know who that is? I'm like, I don't know. Who is that? Oh, yeah, I know who that is. And, And suddenly she has all these people who want to be her friend 
who she pretty much just knows their name, but she may have never even had a real conversation with them. And so, you know, it's a good tool for keeping connected with people who actually are, are real friends, but on the other hand, it's this weird new definition of friendship, you know? Uh, or maybe some of you have been on uh, online bulletin boards on certain subjects. And what's funny is, I, you know, I've been on these things, and the funny thing is they always refer to themselves as communities. But it's like, I don't even know who you people are. You know, you're just, it's a post on a bulletin board with an avatar, which isn't even your picture, it's just a funny picture you put on there. And, you know, if that person who put that post there were to walk up to my door and knock on the door, I wouldn't even know who they were. You know, and if I found out they're a friend from the internet, I probably wouldn't, definitely wouldn't let them in. Like, you know, ah, you know, so you're my friend, I'm part of a community, but I'd be freaked out if you came to my house. You see how weird this is? It's just weird. That's all I'm saying. And so what does it mean then in a virtual world to be a friend or to live in a community? It's almost as if those words have become so weightless and so meaningless that, that loyal, the idea of loyalty and covenant loyalty together has become very strained to the extreme. So what does it mean to be loyal? How do you have a loyal friend? And I don't know all the answers to that. The society is so complex, it's bigger than we are. But I do know this. I know that God has established a community. It's called the local church. This is the family of God. As we come together as a local body, we're coming as those who have come with a personal relationship with Christ, realizing that it's not a private relationship and that part of being a Christian is living in community. That God's plan for maturing Christians is that to happen in the context of a local church. Yes, we're all part of the body of Christ universal, but how do you connect to the body of Christ universal? Through local gatherings. That's the way the, the scriptures teach us. And so the, bi- the, the local church needs to be a place where, think about it this way, it's kind of like a place where we experiment together learning how to be loyal to each other, which we don't know how to do naturally, and which I think our culture is constantly pushing us toward more transience and superficiality. And so really the local church is kind of exciting. It's a place where we can learn to have loyal friendships to each other. Um, I think so often our default state is to look at the church with consumeristic eyes and to say, is this the kind of church that I like? Does this have the kind of music that I like? Are the surroundings the kind of surroundings that I like? Is this the color of carpet that I like? Do I think I like the pastor? And, and you know, I understand there's, there's some validity to those questions because you obviously have to find a church where you're going to be. But what about the other side of it, which is saying, I'm a Christian. God has called me to be in a local church. I need to find a church and commit to some people and open my life to some people and have them open their lives to me. So the church is not just kind of a mall or a service station for spiritual needs, but the church is really what it's supposed to be, a family. You know, if friends love at all times and a brother is born for adversity, well, we have been born as brothers and sisters into the family of God. You know, one of the things I've been pushing myself to do, I tend not to be really... As you can tell, I'm not really very liturgical or I don't use a lot of religious language and I try to just kind of speak plainly. But, you know, there's one sort of religious sort of thing I've been trying to put back into my vocabulary. I've been trying to call Christians that I know brother or sister when I talk to them. And it feels kind of weird. It it feels a little artificial for me, but, you know, because it's like, you know, hey, brother, how you doing? How you doing, sister? And it sounds sort of like corny, you know, fake religion, but... But I've been doing it myself just because I need to remind myself that these people actually are my family spiritually, that God has made us one in Christ. And so it's been really helpful. It's it's kind of awkward, but I'm sort of trying to force myself to do it more. 
Say, how you doing, brother? And it's funny. People start saying it back because we influence each other. Huh? You know? And so I'm, I'm kind of shaping the way we talk to each other in the church. We are the family of God. So it means we need to care for each other and love each other. That's a lot easier said than done. This church is a funny collection of people, starting with the guy behind the pulpit. It's really a funny collection of people. You know, the church may be the family of God, but you know what? It's a blended family. And if any of you have been a part of a blended family, you know that that is sometimes a very difficult kind of unity to maintain. You have people from different socioeconomic strata. You have people from different generations with different assumptions about everything. You have people from different towns. You have people from different uh, life status. Some are single, some are married, some are divorced, some are widowed. You know, just all those things make us different. And it's really a miracle that the church hangs together. Which is one of the reasons I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, this just would not be possible. It's the Holy Spirit that unifies the church. It's not our vision statement that unifies the church. It's not you know, someone's personality. It's the, the Spirit of God that has created us to be a family together, committed to one another. And so what a wonderful opportunity the local church is where we can really commit to each other and care for each other in times of need. And so I just challenge you with that. You know, are you connected? Are you plugged in? Or are you just kind of you know, a spectator, a shopper, checking it out until the next bigger and better deal comes along. Let me ask you three questions for application on this point. I got three questions I sort of wrote down to try to focus my application. Okay, number one, ask yourself this. Do you have any loyal friends in your life? Is there anyone who, if things really went south for you, you know that you could turn to this person and they would be there? Or uh, are all your friends party friends or superficial relationships or, you know, online community friends. Do you have any real friends who would be there for you if things really turned south? Question number two kind of follows on the first one. Do you have any loyal friends in the church? Do you have loyal Christian friends? If you were to not worship here for a month and you weren't to show up in church, would anybody give you a call? In other words, are there people who you're connected with enough on a regular basis that they would really notice if you weren't here? And they'd call you and be like, hey, where you been? You sick? Something going on? You know? Or, or are, you, are, you, are you here but you're not really here? Are you in the church but not of the church? It's not enough to be in the church. You've got to be of the church to be part of the warp and woof of the relational fabric in the congregation. And then number three, the third question, uh, to turn it back toward ourselves, what steps are you and I taking to be a loyal friend. So it's not just about finding a loyal friend for me out there, but am I being the kind of person that God wants me to be? Am I being a loyal friend? Uh, do you know of somebody right now in the church or in your life who is going through that adversity that we read about and that you need to give a phone call to or an email to? We have to practice being the kind of people that we want as our own friends. So loyalty is the first thing we need to look for. Because uh, God tells us to be careful about our friends, to spy them out carefully. The first thing you need to be looking for is a loyal, foul-weather friend who loves at all times. The second characteristic to look for, as I look at Proverbs, is you have to find a friend, or we should look for friends, with godly character. People whose lives you look at and you say, you know what, I want to be like that person. I want to be more like that person. Look at her patience. I wish I was as patient with my kids as she is with hers. Look at him. Look how wise he is with his money. I mean, he's really godly. I would like to learn how to be godly with my money like that. Or whatever the situation is, we have to find friends who 
have character that we want to emulate. Because here's the deal. If they become our friend, we will emulate their character, whether we intend to or not. It's going to happen. So we might as well start and be wise and say, who are my friends going to be? Look at chapter 13. Let's go back to Proverbs. Look around a little bit more. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. It says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. If you walk with the wise, you will grow wise. You will, bec- you know, birds of a feather flock together and you'll become like those other birds. It just happens because that's the kind of people we are. We get influenced. Uh, you'll tend to manage the way you were managed in your company. You'll tend to, to uh, coach the way you were coached. If you're a preacher sitting under preaching, you find that you become a preacher like the preachers you listen to. It just happens instinctively. You tend to do things that your parents did. We are so malleable by relationships. So, be sure that you are among the wise, that the wise are those who you let into the sacred precincts of friendship in your life. This is why, those of you who are going back to school this fall, this is why your parents are so psycho about your friends. (laughs) This is why they're always on your case about your friends. And they're harping on your friends. And who is that? And who are you talking to? And you know, it's like, leave me alone. They're my friends. Like, yeah, there's a reason. It's because your parents were kids too and they remember how affected we are by friendships. And so it's because we kind of instinctively as parents understand this that we get on our kids' case about who are their friends and who we let over to their house and all that kind of thing because we know how powerfully friends affect us. Uh, They can affect us negatively if we fall into the wrong crowd. For instance, look at Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 24 to 25. It says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you will learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Have you ever hung out with somebody who is angry or negative or cynical or bitter or trashing everything and everybody and you just feel that gravitational pull sucking you into the maelstrom, you know, down into this this abyss of just grumpiness and crankiness and negativity? It happens, you know, you hang around people all day, you, you hang around people all day who swear all day, you find yourself swearing. You hang around people who gripe all day, you find yourself griping. It just pulls you in. It's amazing how it happens. So be careful of angry, uh, negative friendships. Or look at chapter 23, just another example. There's so much of this in Proverbs. Chapter 23, verse 19. One chapter over. Listen, my son, and be wise. Keep your heart on the right path. Do not join with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them with rags. Don't join with people who drink too much wine. That's a problem with being in the the party scene. It drags you down. You know, people who've... who've, uh, Maybe some of you have been down this path. You come to a place in your life where you find you're under the control of alcohol, under the control of drugs. How do you get on that path in the first place? I mean, isn't it like 99% of the time, friends... You associate with people who start you on the path. I mean, no one ever just wakes up one day and says, you know what, what am I going to do today? You know, I think I'll, I'll try crack. 
I'll try that today. It never happens. You're with friends who, in the same, in the same way I got my earring, you know, hey, hey, look, come on, do it, let's try it. You know, and it starts with weed, and then it starts the next thing, and then it progresses. It's just, it's friends sucking us along. Which is why when you're trying to break out of those chains of slavery, and slavery it is, when you're breaking out of those chains of slavery, one of the important steps is you have to often cut off those friends who will suck you down that path, even for a time, you know. And, and yeah, you want to be a witness to them for Jesus, but you may need to do it later. Right now, you may need to just sever some friendships and force yourself to be with some uncool people who love the Lord so that you can just be influenced by them and force yourself to be in community with Christians. Sometimes it takes that kind of drastic action. I think this poses a little bit of a challenge, of course, um, because as we're supposed to disassociate from those who would drag us down and associate with those who are wise, uh, one of the things I was wrestling with as I was studying this was, well, where do we do evangelism then? (laughs) You know? Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He went to the parties. Uh, We're supposed to be salt and light, and you can't be salt and light if your whole life is surrounded in a Christian ghetto. You know, where I only hang out with Christian friends and I only go to people with my Bible study and we only watch Christian TV, we only listen to Christian music, my kids only play Christian video games. You know, it's all Christian, Christian, Christian. And, you know, how can you be salt and light if you have no interface with the world? So I was kind of, I don't know, and, and I don't really have an answer for that except maybe just kind of throw it out there for you to have a lunch conversation today that we're called to be salt and light but we're also called not to be imprinted with the world's mark. How do we be in the world but not of the world? And I think it's uh, a real challenge. You know, I know my wife and I have wrestled with that. We got invited to a party, you know, just uh, for instance, a couple years ago, a Christmas party in our neighborhood. And uh, so we went, and we were like, you know, we need to go and and be salt and light and make friends with people. So we went early, and we hung out with people, and we interacted and had conversations. But, you know, as the night went on, people started drinking very heavily, and pretty soon these conversations became less productive. (laughs) So we left. (laughs) And so that, you know, you gotta, how do you do that? How do you find that balance between how to be there but know where the lines are? And I don't know if I have a perfect, easy formula for you with that, but that's something that we have to wrestle with as Christians. How do we be connected in relationship with people who need to know Jesus without being sucked in so that we find ourselves compromising our values and our, our beliefs? It's a very difficult thing to do. <clears throat> but I think this whole thing about being affected positively by those who know the Lord we can even take it a step further. It's not just that they influence us positively, but there are times, if it's a really good friend, that they will get in our face and challenge us about things in our lives that really shouldn't be there. That's when you know you found a good friend. When <laughs> you have a friend like this, who's not only loyal to you, and not only godly, but is willing to get in your face a little bit and say, you know what, I see the way you acted in that committee meeting, and that was out of line. Or I know, you know, when we were at that party the other night, you went too far, or we were sitting there at that dinner conversation and the way you're talking about your spouse was inappropriate. And you know, that hurts. But if you have a friend who's willing to do that, my friends, you have struck gold. This is a real friend. Look at Proverbs 27, verse 6. Not just an example of godliness, but one who will challenge us. Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Or this famous verse, I'm sure you've probably heard this one, 27:17, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, you know, when iron sharpens iron, there's some sparks. 
And the metal gets hot. And it's uncomfortable. But in the end, we come out much sharper. I have a friend like that who was willing to challenge me. Many of you know him, Mark Jennings. He, was, uh, he preached here while I was on sabbatical, and uh, he's working on his Ph.D. right now out in Chicago. Hopefully, I'm hoping they're going to come back to the Boston area. But uh, you, know, just pray, you can pray with me to bring Mark back here. But, uh, you know, we, we talk on the phone like every week and, and totally continue to razz each other and hang out and have fun um, on, you know, uh, with a telephone or whatever. But, uh, you know, he really challenged me one time. I remember when he was still here. Do you remember several years back we had a 5 o'clock service? So we had three services. We had 8.30 service, 11, and the 5 o'clock. And they were all identical, and I preached the same sermon three times. And the church was growing. I'm like, we've got to find some way to accommodate this. Let's do another service. And I'll never forget, I was downstairs in Fellowship Hall. It was after the 11 o'clock service. I was walking through, and we, we were just sat down, sitting down talking together. We had a minute. He said, yeah, I want to talk to you about something. I was like, what? He said, this whole idea of the 5 o'clock service, he goes, you're crazy. I'm like, what? He goes, you can't do this. I'm like, what? You mean I can't do this? I'm super pastor. I mean, I can do anything. <laughs> It's like, you can't do this. He goes, it's going to fry you. You're not going to have enough energy for your family. It's too much. You shouldn't be doing this. I, I just think it's a bad idea. And, you know, like, that's a blow to my ego. <laughs> like, that's my, what do you mean I can't do it? I can do anything if I set my mind to it. Then, and so I went ahead and did it. And uh, two years later, I went on sabbatical, and we closed the service, and I was exhausted. And I was so glad I had a sabbatical to go into. I mean, I was more spent than I had even realized when I went on that break. And it was because of that third service. And, and you know, I had to learn my limitations. But, you know, what a blessing to have a friend who wasn't like, oh, Jeremy's the senior pastor. I can't talk to him. He's like, look, Jeremy, you're a tool, okay? <laughs> I'm going to tell you how it really is. And he just got in my face. And he's a real friend because I know he's not afraid to speak his mind if, if he sees that my life is getting off kilter in some way. Oh, we need to be friends like that. We need to have friends like that. Three more questions. Number one, do you currently have friendships in your life that are influencing you to sin against God? Question number one. Do you have friends that when you hang around them, you find yourself consistently living in ways that displease God because of the influence of those people? If so, may I suggest that you may need to sever some friendships. It may need that kind of dramatic surgery. You may have to cut the cancer out sometimes. And I'll let you use your wisdom on that. But if there are some people who whenever you're around them, they drag you down into ways that dishonor God, you have to stand with God. You have to stand for righteousness. Number two, the flip side of that. Do you have any friends whom God is calling you to influence for Christ, for good? People who are not going to drag you down, but that God's calling you to shine a light to pull them up. Are there friends like that that you need to reach out to and connect with? And I had a guy come to me after the service. It was so cool. He said, he goes, man, I sat down. He started talking about friendship. And this, this friend I have who needs the Lord came to my mind. And then during the sermon, he came to mind again and again. And then you ask the question, do you have any friend that you need to influence? And he came to mind again. He goes, I think God's trying to tell me something. It's <laughs> like, well, the Holy Spirit put that person on his mind. Number three, do you and I have friendships with people of godly character who have permission to speak a word of rebuke into our lives. Do you have a Mark Jennings? Do you have someone? Or are you so isolated and so cut off and so distanced and superficial in your relationships that there's no one who could do that? And if someone came to you and said, you know what, I think you're out of line, you'd get all ticked. What? You're talking to me? And you haven't learned to really listen to somebody who can give you a rebuke. What a wonderful blessing it is to have people 
in our lives who can rebuke us when we need that. That's how God intended for the church to work. Or maybe I'll just leave you with this question, people. What kind of church do you want South Shore Baptist to be? And this is not something I or the elders can determine. This is something we have to determine as a congregation. What kind of church do we want to be? Do we want to be a superficial country club that kind of is baptized with spirituality where we like to sing the songs we like to sing and we like to talk to the people we like to talk to but it remains at a surfacey level or do we want to be a kind of church and strive to be a church where we are we're passionate about knowing serving Christ and where we are learning how to be loyal to each other and to push each other toward Christ likeness and towards serving him you know and that, that's a decision we have to make I mean, as, as far as the first type of church, I'll just be totally honest, that just sounds incredibly boring to me, to say the least. I don't know if I would have gone into the ministry if that's what church is supposed to be, is just kind of, you know, socializing. Hey, how's the Red Sox? Oh, <laughs> you're great, you know. I mean, not that it's wrong to talk about the Red Sox, but do we ever get deeper than that? But the idea of being a church where we have put Christ in the center and where we are forced to be with one another through the Holy Spirit and, and people we normally wouldn't associate with and we're forced to learn how to be loyal and loving and challenge each other in godliness. I mean, well, I'll be honest. First of all, that sounds scary to me. I'm a little terrified at that. But I'm also very intrigued by that. And I don't know exactly how that is supposed to work out, but that's where my heart is and that's the kind of church that I think we are, but I want us to keep pushing toward to become more and more like that. Or maybe we should ask the real question, what kind of church does Christ want us to be? Because it's his church. Who cares what I think? This is his body. And he has told us explicitly the kind of relationships we're to have. And let me just have you turn to one final passage, then we'll close. It's the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Gospel of John, chapter 15. It's on page 1069 in those pew Bibles. John, chapter uh, 15. Verse 12, in the story right here in John, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It is less than 24 hours before his crucifixion. It is the night of the Last Supper. And look what he says in verse 12. My command is this. Love each other. That's the kind of church Christ wants us to be. Where we love each other. And then get this. As I have loved you. And how was that? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father have made known to you. That Jesus came to lay down his life for his friends and he calls us to emulate that kind of love for each other. This is not just a verse for Christians who want to really kick it up a notch. This is the command for all of us to love each other sacrificially as a body and as Christians. Do you have Jesus as your friend? Have you trusted in Christ yourself for your own forgiveness and your own salvation? Has Jesus laid down his life for you? Have you come to your faith in him? That's the beginning. As we said in the beginning, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? That's the first step, is to come to Christ. And then let us, having come to Christ, 
put our arms around one another like a band of brothers and sisters and hold on to each other and challenge each other loyally and lovingly to keep growing in our faith. Let's pray.